welcome and uh, to the next of the the body language masterclass series uh, i'm absolutely delighted uh, to introduce my next guest um some of you may have seen him you may even recognize him so darren stanton who's uh who's been a, a regular on tv for quite some time now uh he's a, a body language expert known as the human lie detector uh, for what it's worth but is recognized as one of the world's number one body language and deception and detection uh, expert uh, welcome darren uh, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you how are you likewise and say just thank you for inviting me it's it's uh, no, it's great i'm good thank you yeah despite everything yeah Right, in, exactly. In spite of what we've been going through <laughs> this year, it's been it's been an absolute roller coaster of a year, I think, uh, nice. for for everybody. I mean, how's it been for you? I mean, tell us a bit about your business and and how you how you do and how you've coped with the changes as well. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's certainly been one for you know developing the mental resilience. I think, um, yeah, I mean, I predominantly do a lot of TV work. However, my bread and butter really is keynote speaking and also consultancy work so I do a lot in and around recruitment so I'm either sitting in for um, you know various large companies on assessment centers and, and the recruitment process as an observer and then reporting back or I'm either teaching people you know the basics of how to do this for themselves so really it's um, it's been challenging because in the space of a couple of days of the announcement of, of lockdown back in back in March um, it, it, that literally cleared my diary for the year um, in the space of two days, as, I, as I'm sure it affected most people that you know are in our industry. Completely, uh, it's been it, it has had a, a devastating effect, and as you no doubt know, you know it's around the world. You know, millions have suddenly found themselves from out of work, um, either on furlough, and then of course the trouble with the furlough scheme here in the UK, as I was talking about on my podcast the other day, is that. Um, we had a furlough scheme up until the end of, of October, the initial one. Yeah. And of course it was running out. So people had to make companies had to make a decision. Do we hold on to people or do we let them go? And if, and those who weren't there were let go only for the government to announce uh, on the last day of yeah. October, we're going to extend the furlough, which was too late if you'd already lost your job. Yeah, so you wouldn't be eligible. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's, it has been really, really tough. I don't, I, you know, I'm sure even though a lot of the politicians and government probably don't get, much sympathy but it is a tough old job I mean I don't think I'd, I'd wish this on anyone at this time Not really I don't think um I mean considering that Boris has only been in power really a year mm. I don't you know you just couldn't write it as they say I think you know no matter what people's views on on him and the cabinet are you know it's, it's certainly been been a challenging time for him I'm sure has it, has it kept you busy I mean I I suspect that being I, 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 I imagine sort of you naturally are watching these press conferences and without even doing the work, I'm sure you must be looking there thinking that's not right or this is right. You know, yeah, have you, have you found yourself doing that. And oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I also do is I assess sort of a lot. Of, I've been involved in a lot of poly, you know, political stuff sort of worldwide. So I, I worked a lot on, for example, the 2017 primaries for, for Trump worked on the election this year which was obviously another story um and then obviously i've worked on sort of all the um head-to-head -head debates in the uk since 2010 so you know i do assess a lot of politicians worldwide like putin people like this so the daily briefings really um were very interesting even though 
a lot of the newspapers and, and TV weren't taking a lot of work uh, or weren't, weren't taking a lot of freelancing work from me. So I found myself a bit of a loose end, but I've still written because I've, I've, I've used it productively because I had a second book coming out but now I'm going to hang fire on, on releasing that now and I'm going to get include, you know, things from what happened this year in terms of what I saw. So, yeah, certainly it's been very interesting from my point of view, observing the daily briefings and seeing the changes, really, in terms of how certain people like Boris and Hancock have evolved um, uh, in various ways in terms of how they deliver information. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm sure you've got no end of uh, of material there. Uh, to look at and assess but talk to me a little bit about your journey because it's uh, I mean obviously I've, I've done a little bit of homework and it's been it's, it looks really fascinating in terms of of the journey that you've you've taken but um, perhaps give us a little pricey now where did you start off because I, I don't think it was quite in body language was it? No I actually started off when I was five or six years of age my uh, I was one of these kids that were forced into taking piano lessons um, so for a long time I was going to be I was destined to be um, professional musician or like a concert pianist because I, I mean, even to this day, I still play piano. I love playing piano. I play play violin, which I learned recently uh, during lockdown. Um, but um, I think around the age of sort of 17, um, as most people do, I was sort of looking to do other things by then because I'd had a good sort of 12 years of, of 13 years of practicing piano, sort of six hours a day. Um, and I found that I'd always been the sort of person that could connect well with other people. And I'd always had a very inquisitive mind in terms of um, why people did certain things. So I guess it's no great surprise that I ended up sort of doing psychology and sociology, um, you know, uni. Um, and effectively went on, did um, all the CPD stuff, became a psychologist. And I worked briefly was well, as an assistant psychologist in the prison service um, for, for a while. Um, at the time, the, the show Cracker was really big. And if people that are old enough to remember this, the show Cracker with Robbie Coltrane in the UK, and it was a show in America, and it was a psychologist that helped the police solve crimes through psychology. But I, I quickly learned that that wasn't the reality of, of what being a prison psychologist was all about. And once I kind of got what I needed to get in that environment, I found it really wasn't for me. And then I found myself at a bit of a loose end thinking, what am I going to do? And I had a couple of friends that were in the police and at the time uh, they were recruiting. And so I applied and, and got in. So for about 17 years, I was a, a what we'll call a response officer. So going to all the, you know, the kind of 999 or 911 calls, depending where, where you're based, listen to this. So the emergency calls. So I was dealing with, you know, all the serious sort of crime, um, interrogating suspects. But even though I was a police officer throughout that, that process, I never lost my passion for people and, and to understand, you know, why. So I kind of used the police service in a way because they, you know, in the early stages used to pay for lots of courses and CPD stuff, continuous professional development courses. And so I kind of, you know, acquired a lot of skills within the police. Um, and then 2010, really, um, I had a bit of a catalyst because I lost both my parents and took time out and thought, you know, what am I going to do? Because I felt that I'd reached a point within the police that I couldn't really go any further in terms of what I wanted to do. And quite by chance, I met a, um, a guy that was in PR and we got talking and he's the one that came up with the brand of the human lie detector. Um, a guy called Steve McComish, 
um, which is a fantastic guy, and it's all down to him. I still give him give him due credit. Um, and since 2010, really, I've been very blessed to work within media um, and, and to really earn my living from uh, something that I'm extremely passionate about. And, I, and I'm and I'm sure all those years as a as a policeman, you uh, you you had your fair share of uh, of people who were uh, were being deceptive. Um, and I'm sure some some better at it than others. Um, one of the key key skills of a of a good policeman is is trying to work out um, what people are saying is the truth and what isn't and what those indicators are. So I guess you've done a lot of the uh, the donkey work, sort of out in the field, as it were. Absolutely. I mean, predominantly, a lot, most people that you're dealing with um, on a daily basis in terms of interviewing suspects um, are generally trying, trying to be deceptive because you did. You did used to see the same faces, so there were there were a kind of a turnover of the same faces that you that you dealt with. And when I first got in, because I thought it was going to be one thing, and then it, it it became another. And what I mean by that is is that there wasn't the formality of what you you thought was there between a police officer and a suspect. It was uh, they'd go, "Hello, Darren, how are you?" Or "Hello, PC Stanton." I'd go, "Yeah, not so bad, Steve. How are you?" So there'd be this kind of like you're talking to a friend because you had that level of rapport. Yeah. So for certain factions of people that you dealt with, they'd say, I'll just be honest with you. You know, yeah, I did it. I said, well, hold it there. Let's just we'll do the interview. Um, so you'd press record and they'd just say, yeah, I, you know, I burgled that property or I stole that money. And so there, were, there was a lot of people like that that just came in, you know, played the game as they, as they called it. The, 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 the stuff we got a little bit more interesting was people that obviously would never been in trouble with the police. Things have happened, circumstances had happened, and then they'd find themselves, you know, obviously being dealt with. And, you know, some people are probably honest, but then there were some that were being deceptive. And although these techniques are absolutely not admissible in, in British law, um, you did develop quite, a, um, quite an astute skill for recognising, because you sat across the table from people, from you know your suspect, yeah, and there would be, I could see the the things that I'd studied on paper. I could, you know, it was great because I was seeing it sort of physically, mm. and I was aware that you know, like they say, hand to mouth gestures and things like this, self reassurance things that we'll probably discuss. So I was seeing the, the kind of practical aspects of what I've been studying, and so I think that was invaluable, really. Um. And again, although I couldn't then go to an inspector and say, look, um, this person's, um, their blink rate increased during this, these, this questioning, I need a warrant. You know, you'd be laughed out of the, out of the police station because, yeah. it, again, it's not admissible. Yeah. But what I did do, it would enable you to um, go in a certain line of inquiry. So, for example, you know, if you ask a question and you could see that that's kind of created a bit of a red flag, um, you'd probe a little bit further on that. So you'd realise that that was a significant line of inquiry. Yeah. So whereas some officers perhaps weren't aware of that, that, that red flag would leave that alone, that topic alone, whereas I would pursue it. So that's why I, I probably did um, detect probably more crime because mm. I, I'd, I'd go in a direction of line of inquiry that, that other officers probably wouldn't. But I, again, it's certainly not admissible in, in law, but it was invaluable in terms of... Um, helping me really yeah and and you know what that it's it strikes me the similarities between between that and and a job interview which obviously we you know ultimately we we talk about here and how we're trying to help people find work 
but um, in the same way that it's not, you know, it's not admissible in a court of law, and therefore you'd be laughed out of out of the police station if you try to go down that route. It's in the same way that during an interview process, if, for example, if the interviewer started going back to the CEO and said, "All it is is just based, all of my instincts are, are based on this," they they probably similarly would do. Mm. Um, I think that nowadays, if somebody is well trained in it, I think they have a. It's quite heavily weighted. So it gives you a very strong indication. But I, I guess while we're sort of going down that, you know, I, what I'm particularly interested in is that, um, that sort of misinterpretation that people have. And I, I think a lot of that's down to um, that people have got more and more interest in body language. And I think I suspect sort of about 20, 30 odd years ago mm. in, in the business world, it was it wasn't really quite that much looked into and it's become more and more popular and there's been more credence and a lot more science behind it. Um, but then we still have that issue where people generally aren't that well-trained in it, but they just have a tiny little snippets of information sure. and quite often they can be wrong. Um, how have you, have you come across that as well? And, you know, and uh, are we, what are those sort of common misconception when you mentioned ones about you know touching your nose and things like that but often people completely misconstrue it I mean it's a fantastic question and and yeah I mean I've come across it lots and you know people often say to me even you know a lot of my friends are still police officers and they'll say yeah you know you you might be on the telly but I, I still you know I still get a lot of arrests and I'm like yeah but this idea that we've got this innate ability yes we've got a good instinct but I think what what you know research has showed us is that the ability to spot, to spot deception or to spot certain things um, with some degree of accuracy is actually not no more accurate than a coin toss. You know, so we may as well just toss a coin and it's generally 50-50 um, without, without some sort of training. And I think you're right, with certainly with the explosion of the internet and, and everything else, that people maybe do a bit of a weekend course or an online course um, and then suddenly they call themselves. I mean, I've come across people, you know, I'm, I'm a master, you know, master at such and such. And I'm like, well, how can you be a master? I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years and I'm not a master of anything. Um, yeah. You know, so I think there is there is a tendency for people to think they've got more more skills and abilities. And we know that the, the way the unconscious mind works is it will always seek out evidence to support a belief. So sometimes I think people maybe um, predict a piece of behavior and kind of make it fit almost in a way. To, to kind of validate their skill set. I've come across that quite a lot. Um, does, that, does that help? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, think it, I think it's absolutely true. I, it's, um, and where I see it is where I've quite, quite often had uh, interviews that have conducted, and obviously I've conducted a few thousand and had a, had a lot there. And it's interesting that I think one of the, one of the real challenges that, that takes place is the fact that interviewers will make an immediate judgment on somebody. So that that uh, old adage of, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first mm. impression is so true. Yes, you know, yeah. right from the get-go, you can you can either fluff it completely or suddenly you, you are the best thing ever. But then the issue is, is that what happens is that the interviewer will then start looking for reasons to confirm what their initial judgment was. And I've often had it where I've debriefed interviewers and they've said yeah I I didn't like them I, they weren't right they they weren't right at all and you know that as soon as they've said that it's yeah. because of what they've their initial judgment 
And then they start giving me a series of sort of what they've said, where they were shifting, the way they were looking up like this when they're asked, or they were obviously lying. I don't believe them about their figures yeah. at all. And you, and I know that's based on exactly what we're talking about, which is this sort of misconception of, of what body yeah. language is. Yeah, I think, um, sorry about that, I was making sure my phone's on um, Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, I've sat in on, on a lot of um, sort of assessment centres as a silent observer and sat in on um, sort of on panels, again, just as a silent observer where people have been interviewing. And I've been aware that maybe one or two of the panel have had a certain, you know, kind of idea about a certain candidate, you know, maybe favoured one or over another. And again, in psychology, what people tend to do is, you know, they'll delete, distort and generalise, you know, which kind of comes from NLP. Um, you know, they'll delete, um, delete distort and generalise to kind of make the evidence fit, as we've said. So I think the fact that someone looks, as, as God said, for example, you know, as I'm talking to you now, if I've been looking up and left, which, and I'm right-handed, NLP would say that I'm visually remembering, but then if I suddenly go like that and then like that, you know, have I lied? No. Is there any basis scientifically, the fact that I switch patterns and then look back? No, but, but NLP or psychology would argue that I've switched my, my eye accessing cue to a, to a you know, visual construction. So yeah. I think that's where people let things run away with them. Mm. Um, and again, with, with the things that I do, I'm not really looking for, well, there is no method to, to, to predict lies or detect lies. What I'm really looking for is um, emotional responses and emotional changes to, to stimuli. So, you know, this is very much based in science. A lot of what I do is, is from um, a guy called Paul Ekman, um, who a lot of people are aware of. And there was a TV show some years ago called Lie to Me that used to be on. And, uh, you know, a lot of the... That show. I, yeah, I used to look at Tim Roth. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, the kind of uh, principles in that were based in science. Uh, and certainly the, the, you know, the idea of the micro expressions, which, which I'm sure we'll chat about. Um, so when, you know, when I'm giving uh, my feedback to people, once a candidate has left, it'll be quite comprehensive. And even though I may pick up on a change of emotion in a certain part of the interview, I still don't, don't, don't then frame it as deception. I will say, look, there was a significant um, emotional shift around the time that you were asking this candidate about this job. Now, it might just be like, were they being bullied in that job? Had they had a bereavement? Had they been going through a divorce? You know, was something else going on in their life at, the, at that time, mm. which would have produced the same false positive? So again, that's why I believe, that's why I think polygraph is not that accurate. Although I've had some very heated debates with polygraph examiners that say it's 95% accurate. No, well, I, you know, I disagree with that. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, this is very, very, it's a fantastic tool for people that are involved in recruitment and interviewing. But I think as long as they're kind of aware of um, its limitations in a way, you know, and, and I think it's very, very important interviewers don't start extra extrapolating out beyond what it is really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, and then even the ones where they, they're not, sort of having done the, you know, they've read a book on it or listened to a podcast somewhere. Um, what I think we sort of naturally do it. There's sort of, there's, there's that instinctive side to it where we all know when we go out and when we were allowed to go out, we go out and, uh, 
and you go to a restaurant or whatever else, you, you instinctively either like someone, dislike someone. You you can see when somebody's sad. You can see when somebody's happy. Mm -hmm. You you know you you can instinctively read that. So clearly, as yeah. as human beings, we have that within us to yeah. naturally know immediately something. Um, do you think there is a there are some techniques that perhaps that candidates can do from their side of it that can help them right from the get-go to try and avoid those sort of little pitfalls that that you can have when you're going to to an interview and you you suddenly because you're nervous and you've done you just suddenly do something wrong and it's misread but you don't realize that you're doing it i think again another great question i think one of the big ones that, that people often miss out on is what we call state management you know so what is your emotional state like what is you know and, and how do you kind of control that or change that so if you recognize and again this this does come from nlp if you recognize that you're a bit of a wreck before you go into these situations then you know be thinking about what's this what sort of language are you using with yourself you know either in your prep or on the lead up to the interview or even sat waiting to go into the interview you know is that little voice on your head giving you positive self-talk what you know how are you feeling and, and if it's not productive, then how would you rather feel? You know, what would be a more um, appropriate way of saying to yourself, you know, that you're going to do well and that you've, you know, you've got the qualifications, you've got the experience, you really want this position. And I think saying those things to yourself in a positive way is going to be a lot more beneficial than, than having a voice saying, you know, every, every time I come into an interview, I always get nervous. Well, that's cause and effect. You know, yeah. every time I see a red traffic light, I stop. And it's, it's exactly the same psychological process. You're getting a stimulus yeah. and a response. So I think be aware, begin to write down, and, and, and we call it, you know, sensory acuity, um, begin to be aware of what your own patterns are as a, as a candidate in terms of what do you say to yourself? Because I think if we were to think about, you know, we want a strategy to make ourselves feel terrible, you know, well, having a voice in your head saying every time I go into an interview, I mess it up. I think that's a great strategy for failure. You know, so so think about what would be a, a more appropriate strategy for, for you know, for, for success. So I think feeling calm and, and, and not too relaxed, but I think you've got to give the impression that you, you know, you're engaged. Um, you know, not slouching back in the seat like I've seen some people do and sort of sat there like they're having a drink with a friend. Um, so I think... You know, the state management is an important one. And then, you know, again, we're all aware of this matching and mirroring the posture of, of various people, you know, and again, recently, well, before COVID, um, there was a panel of three people and one of the people interviewing, their eye contact was really poor, whereas the other two, were, were, you know, was, was engaging. And what, apparently what came back was this candidate, they didn't, was successful, but... The, the, it was interesting because the one that didn't make eye contact said they were brilliant, and the one the ones that did make eye contact said, "Well, I didn't like them because they couldn't they couldn't look me in the eye." So it's it, so obviously this candidate was in, in an impossible situation really because yeah. there was eye boy looking at the, the person that weren't wasn't making eye contact, and probably using that as their baseline. Yeah. So I think being being able to match and mirror the posture, treat every person that, that's interviewing you if there's more than one as an individual and again the things about the crossed arms you know that's a big one for people you know um yeah. oh they're in, they were interested they're disinterested they were using blocking blocking mechanisms you know crossed ankles and crossed arms well 
yeah, that may be true, but but I think statistically, it's more often that that's a comfortable posture for people. Yeah, you know, I've been to, I mean, I've been to you know a lot of seminars over the years, and if my belief system was such that you know people folding their arms are disinterested at my my talk, if I'm stood there in front of like I recently did, I got a talk in Prague in front of five thousand people um, last year uh, November. Um, and a lot of them were sat like that. Now, if, if, I, if my belief was such that that was negative, I'm sunk from a state management point of view. Um, and, and the feedback, you know, was that they did enjoy it, which was good. So I think two key things are, state, you know, being aware of your own states as you go into an interview and then matching and mirroring. And then at some point in the, in the interview, you know, maybe change something subtly about yourself as a candidate. So maybe, you know, change your weight distribution to just sit in the chair or maybe some posture that you've got. And what you'll notice is that that one of these candidates, uh, one of the um, panel or two of the panel may follow you. And that means that they're in deep rapport with you. Yeah, I think I it's interesting because I think the 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 panel interview process is, is always a bit more challenging uh, for that very reason. And, and even if and I know it's part of that of body languages of where, where do you look? What do you do? And, 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 and Hey, if that, and I know that can, can really confuse even some of the most confident candidates. Uh, it can put them off their stride. It can be challenging. I've got, yeah. you know, one, one organization, I've done quite a bit of work with the, the big four consultancies and they're renowned for the uh, volume of interviews they did. In fact, uh, um, the record that I had was 12 interviews uh, for a particular candidate Um, and that didn't include the practice interviews that they did so they even so they even did rehearsal interviews so you would get assigned somebody from within the business who was another partner who was sponsoring you and then they would go through and prepare you for an interview with a randomly selected panel so it it was that was a tough round of of interviews for them Um, but part of that was and 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 myself working with them is exactly what you were talking about which was how do you deal from when you're getting away from that one-on-one situation and mm-hmm. you're having a number of them um, and what made it even more complex is quite often they would have somebody who would take the lead and then you would have somebody who occasionally pipe in and then you'd have someone who would literally say nothing yeah about the whole thing and you're thinking well and, and it's really off-putting because you're thinking, well, what, what is this person doing here? Well, and they're yeah. taking notes, and they're, is he going to ask a question at some point? So it does no, put you under a lot of pressure. It does. It's, it's a lot of balls to manage, really, because you, yeah. you know, you're there, you're, you're trying to cut the information, the <clears> information, <throat> you know, make, so, so you're maintaining lots of different things in your head. Um, and I, I just think the best for me, I think, so I, I lecture sort of part-time at my local uni as well for graduate students on, on things like this, and you know, uh, a lot of the time I say, look, just, just be you, just be, you know, be your natural self. As long as you're in a positive um, state of mind and you're being open and honest about, about, you know, what you've done and what your experiences are, um, you've got to treat everyone like an individual, you know, because everyone's got their own quirks. So, you know, I've encountered lots of people, um, not just in recruitment, that, you know, that's just their way. You know, they won't look you in the eye. They won't, they won't sort of shake hands. I mean, you know, the handshake is one that we can we can look at. Um, and there's so much uh, kudos is taken from a handshake, for example, from, from people. Um, and that there's so many mistruths about that as well. Um, 
and again eye contact you know we say three to five seconds of, of eye contact so you know if i'm looking at you now sort of one two three you know by the time we get to five it feels kind of night right to sort of look away a little bit yeah and what they say is if we engage eye contact with someone without blinking for more than five seconds we're either going to hit them or kiss them because generally <laughs> uh, a prolonged eye contact is 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 reserved for people in in more of a either romantic relationship or more family or you know the first thing that you see certainly when i was a policeman you know, if you're watching CCTV, the first level of aggression that you see between people, uh, generally men, but some women do fight as well. But generally, the, the guys would be, yeah, what are you looking at? Sort of mindset. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, just just be aware that, you know, three to five seconds. Don't be the sort of candidate that sits there staring at people because they'll <laughs> they'll find it very disconcerting. They'll think, you know, one or two things. It, it's so true, and I, and I also that that folded arms. Thing is so true funny enough i was i was talking to my wife the other day about that and um and she's somebody that does fold arms and i and genuinely i don't think it's because she's trying to block me mm. out but even though she might do <laughs> but no but she was saying the same thing is that she just finds that comfortable for her it's actually just a comfortable position she has so she often does that when in, and i've noticed she does that in lots of scenarios so and it's and it's interesting how people will engage on that but the the folded arm things absolutely i i would i would say that just about every single recruiter around the world will advise candidates and probably rightly because i think that at the end of the day hiring managers and interviewers are going to regardless of what they do they're going to read it negatively yes and and they shouldn't i i completely agree with you they shouldn't do um but interestingly it's the it's the other way around as well that can do because quite often you come across as as candidates. You can come across all kinds of different characters as as interviewers, um, and we sort of started talking about that. But you have those different types, and on the two extremes, you either have the the slightly nervous interviewer because they've not done it before, and then they're even more nervous than the candidate, which is an Absolutely. interesting one when you come across that. that as well, yeah. And um, and of course the other one, which we always worry about, the 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 really sort of alpha male dominant type of character um and i've and i've seen my fair share of them as class previous clients of mine more often than not they've been from those sort of fast growth um companies startupy type businesses quite entrepreneurial they're quite high energy um and they'll either pop in at the end of the process or you know quite early on but yes. they'll be really quick to the point you know you've you've got 10 15 minutes with them and then that's it you know, yeah. and if you haven't made an impression, you've gone. So it's, it's really high pressure. And the, the best thing I've ever tried to compare them with is it's sort of it's sort of a little bit like when you see Piers Morgan interviewing politicians in that he comes across and his style is is very strong, alpha, yeah. very aggressive in his interview technique. And what I found interesting is just is how few people can deal with it. It's it's a very difficult one to deal with it's probably not a great interview style certainly not for jobs in trying to find no, people no. but what would you suggest i mean if you're coming up against people like that i mean what how would you how do you deal with an aggressive interviewer that is another great question i think just touching on piers morgan i think that's why um boris johnson tends to send in hancock and various other people and that goes and hides in a, in a fridge like last year <laughs> Um, I mean, I once went for an interview with somebody many, many years ago, and it wasn't sales or anything. It was for training. It's a trainer, and 
the guy, he literally was like David Brent. I, he had the CV and he, I don't want the paper here, but he was sat there, sat back in his chair and he literally got the CV and went, and the, the CV is like this. And then he, he gave me, I was remember it, he gave me a glass head and said, sell that to me. And I said, but I'm not here for a sales position. <laughs> I didn't get the job. <laughs> but I thought, so you are going to get these people, these people that, that are quite anachronistic, you know, that, that they kind of, they are the alpha male. I think personally it's not to be intimidated by these people. And I think a lot of the time it is about, about ego. I know people have read the, the, the chimp paradox, you know, and I think it's that kind of idea that it's important not to let your own sort of chimp come out of its cages. Just be you. You're unique. You're there. You've done the preparation you know, you've got the experience um, and just, you know, do not allow your ego to be drawn in because that's a lot of the time with some of the people. Um, a lot of interviewers use job interviews, I think, just to just to it's not so much about the fact that they're looking to recruit the right person. I think they use it as a means to sort of show off in a way. So I think it's almost hey. like show, show. I call it showboating, you know, so so. I don't think you'll come across them too often, but you will come across them undoubtedly. So just just be careful not to get drawn in. Just again, match your mirror posture. Um, not to start throwing things like this guy, obviously, but um, again, just the same advice holds really. But um, just don't allow yourself if you do if they say something that's slightly on the mark or slightly you know insulting. I, I wouldn't be drawn in. This sort of thing. I mean, challenge inappropriate things, obviously, but if they said something, but I think by and large. Um, these people are just purely there to exercise their own ego. I hope that helps. That's that's kind you know, of. I think, I think it's so true. I think it's so true. There there is a lot of that. I think that takes place. And you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're dealing with human beings. So you know, human human beings are are strange. We're strange creatures, and which hence probably why we both like to be involved in uh, in in human interaction and human behavioural uh, type of of jobs because. It is fascinating, and it, and and although human beings are to a large degree predictable, they're also completely unpredictable. That's the thing. Well, and that's that's what makes it so interesting. And there is certainly that I think with with interviews where there is uh, there is ego at play. There's there's also I I've noticed there's there's that dynamic, especially when you have the two people in there, where they may be playing against each other. Yeah. So in actual fact, you're having you're you're witnessing a competition and and a and a challenge of egos right in playing out right in front of you. Um, and again, I've I've seen that firsthand uh, in in a number of interviews that have taken place. I think I've certainly seen it where we've had the David Brent sort of character um, mm. or Diane Brent even, and then also we've had somebody that that's sort of super professional, you know, is there to to get the best candidate and to see the dynamic play off each other. It's almost yeah. like you're caught in the middle of a bit of a, a bit of a power struggle. So it, it can be can be disconcerting, certainly if you're already nervous. But again, yeah. as I said, best advice is just just stick to your guns, just be yourself, and then get caught, then get drawn in. And of course, we've we've got a, a lot of things have changed now because we're sort of keeping it as the what was traditional, where we would actually physically go somewhere and we you have that interaction and shaking hands and you can do all of that. Whereas as it stands right now, just about every interview now is 
uh, it's like we're doing now, which is is on uh, video conferencing. Yeah. Um, and therefore, we now only see a fraction of the of the of the person. So we're only seeing the top half, you know, the top quarter, you know, depending on how you put your 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 screens. How does that come into play? Because that, I mean, we 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 sort of touched on it earlier about the the sort of micro expressions, but that yeah. it makes it more obvious now. Where and I think it sort of makes it more tricky. I think in some respects for uh, on both sides because people aren't really aware quite what they should be doing and how they should be behaving and um, do they. And I think they, they either suddenly freeze. So I think they either get to a, like a point where I'm not going to move at all and I just sit like this, and or they become too expressive and it becomes quite distracting. So again, you know, how, how do you feel that people should sort of play that? Again, I think just, just make the effort to be you know, as engaged as possible. I mean, again, and you know, some great questions that you're throwing at me and in terms of like the bottom half, for example. So, you know, let's say, let's put this in the context of a job interview and, you know, I, I'm coming over in a certain, a certain way from the top half of my body, but hypothetically, you know, my foot might be going like this from anxiety. So you're not going to see that. And then a classic example of this was I assess um, a lot of sports people for um, sort of Sky News and various other sort of Sky um, TV um, outlets. And one that I did with last year was with um, Mayweather and McGregor. who were fighting each other. And Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather, was sat on a bench drinking a, drinking a drink. And McGregor was right in his face, really right in his personal space. And the top half of him... It was completely stoic, like he wasn't at all interested. He was doing this gesture called a power thrust, which is just like arrogance, like not interested, not phased by ye. But then I zoomed in on his foot, which was on this like a bar stool. And his foot was, it's on my website, his foot was going like, you know, tapping like L. And that was internally, that was a leakage red mm. flag saying, I'm just, I'm really concerned he's going to hit me or he's going to, he's going to do something to make me look stupid. So we had the top half of him, which could have given us one, gives us one set of messages, but then deeper than that, like an iceberg, we had contradictory evidence. So I think, you know, certainly in terms of doing Zoom and video conferencing interviews is, I think it's just important that you, you, you know, you, you have to make the best of what you've got. Um, and in, in terms of if you're engaging, I mean, we can still do the eye contact, you know, I can still match and mirror you. I mean, I'm actually quite an animated person. So we do lack a lot of information, both, you know, that the candidate will be aware of and the interviewers. But I think you can still gain a, a real sense of the person, but we do undoubtedly lose a lot of information in terms of what the person's doing with the feet, for example. You know, we call them anchor points. And if they're constantly jigging around, but you're not aware of it, then... You're not, you're not really going to get a sense of that, that real person until you physically meet them. So yeah. there, is, there is a degree of risk. And, and I think, you know, in this business that we're involved in, you know, it is about the minimization of risk yeah. of, of a bad hire because it's, as we know, it's very, very easy to appoint somebody and, and not so easy to, to kind of get rid of it if they're not the candidate that we thought they were. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? You, you hit one of the big um, uh, touch points at the moment in the industry, which is about that, you know, how are you hiring? Are you hiring uh, to minimize risk? Are you actually hiring for potential? And which is a whole different, uh, different talk entirely, because there's the, the you know, the, there's a lot of talk about, well, they had a red flag, they had this red flag, they had this red flag, and they're sort of uh, focusing too much on on that side. It's, 
it's almost as if it will how much what do you minimize risk from and uh, there's some there's some colleagues in the industry who I I'm I sort of work with over in the US who have actually come out of the special forces over there and have developed um, uh, hiring strategies and are doing really really well on, on that side and one of the examples that that they use um, is talking about the the minimization of risk and what your assessment is and how you uh, what your strategic priorities are when you're out in the battlefield right now of course if you if you want to minimize your risk entirely, well, the minimization of risk is, well, I, I don't want to get killed when I go into battle. Sure. But of course, if you do take that to its extreme, well, you're not going to be particularly effective as a soldier, because yeah. if your minimization yeah. is, I'm, I'm just not going to get killed, I'm not going to get shot at, mm. then you're going to not put yourself into it, because you have to put yourself into a position sure. where you might potentially get shot. But you're obviously trying to minimize that so there is an element of how far do you go yes. on the red flags with it and yeah. and i think there is an awful lot that interviewers in particular concentrate too much on on the red flags um because they are they've either been burnt in the past they've uh, they've had a bad hire and they they and the bad hires always stick with you for years and years and years oh. and um and so they try and minimize that and that can be tricky for candidates to try and overcome as how do I um, go through that balancing act of making them feel that I'm not creating red flags for you um, but at the same time I'm showing you what my potential and what, my, what the opportunity is and the value that I can bring to you mm. um, and the the red flags in in particular uh, whether it is face-to-face -face or whether it's on on video is is about and why, why we're sort of investigating this is how you can do that with your, with your, the way that your demeanor is and what you're doing and throughout that process that sort of eliminates as much as possible the red flags mm. because that is what a, a lot of interviewers are looking at. Again, it's a fantastic topic. And I think for a long time, certainly when I was a lot younger, you know, there was this, this um, sort of tendency for people that they'd left the, left the job on the 28th of the month, started on the 1st. And every job was like that. And you think, well, life's not like that. Life's life, not linear. It does, you know, you do start a job and you hate it and you, you just don't get on. So I think as time's gone on, where, whereas, I mean, the old, the old question about what's your strength, what's your weakness? I think whereas in years gone by, the idea that you started a job and were there for three months and you hated it and you left, um, you know, people used to be afraid of disclosing that or they'd, they'd sort of just like leave it off the CV. But in the, this day and age now where, you know, information is, is checkable in seconds, you know, people would lie about qualifications and everything's verifiable straight away. Yeah. And we have access to that sort of information. So I think I've known a lot of people that on paper would look like they're a nightmare. But in terms of the practicality of their skill sets, you know, like I've got a friend that it's just his nature. Like he will go in, he will be like a project <laughs> manager. He's amazing at getting, bringing everyone together, at getting momentum, you know, but there'll come a point in the process of that where he'll just get bored and he'll fall to pieces. So his CV is, was for a long time a succession um, and he always completed the project, but there, was, but there were always quite short-term projects and he'd recognised in, in himself that, you know, he's just not built that way. He, he doesn't want to be in a job for 10 years, for seven years, you know, and, and he's finding, and, he, and, and I think... For some people, they would see that as a red flag, the fact that, oh, you, you, you've not got much stability or you've not got much resilience because you tend to leave quite quickly. You know what I mean? So I think yeah. 
if you're being open, honest and say, look, the, the truth of it was I went there. It, it really wasn't what I thought. It wasn't what I signed up for or I had this disagreement. I think a lot of interviews now, they respect the honesty of the fact that, 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 that life isn't like that. And sometimes people do take jobs um, on, in good faith um, that, that, that really weren't right for them. So I think there's a lot of that now coming in for me as well. Yeah. Um, but, but in terms of like, like the bad hires, I think it's where you've had people that have either um, been dismissed for various things, you know, maybe sort of gross misconduct sort of um, offences. Or and I mentioned to you the, the other day when we spoke that um, I work for a, a sort of a well-known bank sometimes and they'd got down to two or three candidates and they were going to appoint one of these two people in the end. And one of the people was amazing, you know, American guy. And, and he, it, you know, he was talking about this project that he, that he did in New York and it raised all millions of dollars and he was instrumental in this, that, and the other. And then there was lots of things that he produced, lots of red flags um, and sort of emotional things were happening on his face. And it concerned me because there was a, about, I mean, generally about six or seven things that I'm looking for. So I'm looking for um, blood uh, moving from the, the lips. So the expression you've seen, you like you've seen a ghost. So when we have a dramatic emotional shift, um, lips will tend to drain from the lips, the ears and the nose, or it'll be pumped to certain parts of the body. That's a big one. I'm looking for blink rate. I'm looking for pupil dilation, looking for changes in eye accessing positions. I'm looking for a dramatic withdrawal of if someone's quite animated, if someone has a, a, a quite a dramatic shift in emotion, they'll forget to, to, to be themselves. So they're so focused on selling the lie and getting past that point that unconsciously they call it cognitive overload. So whereas they've been juggling the balls quite easily because they feel quite comfortable talking about talking about their, their, their series up to that point, once they reach this point where they've got to be uh, or where they're being challenged, or when it's not just free-flowing and they have got to focus a lot more, then uh, this is where the leakage comes in. And the long and story, short of that story was that he'd not only not worked at, uh, sorry, not only not done that project, he'd not worked at that bank at all. So he, he just kind of either, you know, did have done his research and found out because he was name-dropping various people that some of the people knew and, and, and yeah, they'd never heard of him. So I just said, when you do your enhanced vetting on this candidate because it was for a quite a high, high paying position. Um, I really want you to do some extra extra vetting on this this part of the CV. Um, and, and they came back and said, wow, we were going to give the guy a job. Um, if you hadn't have like really, because I really, I really was concerned because um, he was that, it was that visible. There was something going on. I said, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong and I apologize. But they said we were going to, we were probably going to give that guy the job. And yet um, it trans I think it transpired, he got sacked from, various places for various things. Um, wow. So I mean, that is, is incredible. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you're right, you know, these, you know, there's there's a couple of different different areas there that you look at is, is that one, you know, the, the world is, you know, people are a lot more transient nowadays, whereas sort of 30, 40 years ago, the sort of the times of our, our parents, um, people stayed in the job forever basically you know you you went there and it was you know and it's and it's gradually over time got to a point where you you know your average tenure at a job has started to to come down mm. whereas certainly when I started working if you had less than sort of seven or eight years 
had any job you you really wouldn't be considered whereas mm -hmm. it's it's slowly gone down to sort of less than five years and really in a lot of them it's sort of two or three years that's it's, it's more than acceptable now to do that what people are looking and concentrating on is well what did you produce during that time what was the value that you gave to that organization and in the time of how we're moving so rapidly yeah. um uh, as uh as an industry, as an economy, as the world, everything is changing so quickly. People are more than happy to accept that, you know. And going back to that example I gave of my of my colleagues over in the U.S. Um, looking for, uh, you know, what you look for and what you assess uh, in terms of people, they also give a, an example of uh, of the Navy SEALs out there, which is obviously one of the the top special forces in the world. Yeah. Um, and they, they don't hire based on experience. So they actually do not hire people who come from the military. Oh. So Navy SEAL operators who are the very best in the world um, are people who come off the street. They literally have no, no experience, yeah. you know, yeah. and they come into it. Obviously, their assessment, though, isn't just a couple of interviews. Their assessment lasts, you know, six months worth of, of basic training in which obviously yeah. they whittle down so many of them. Um, but a lot of the time, what they're assessing during that time is potential. Mm. You know, do you do you are you going to culturally fit within this? Or can you learn? Are you able to do it, adapt? Can you do you have all of those abilities there rather than I've been in the army for the last 10 years and I know how to shoot. And that's sort of also a, a little bit of a sea change for people in, in business, because more often than not, if we say sales, for instance, a lot of hiring managers, what they look for is they say, I, I want somebody who's worked for my competitor for the last six, seven years, and they've been doing really well. That's what I want. Hmm. And again, that's because they're minimizing the, the red flags. They, don't, they, don't, they want to try and minimize their risk Definitely as so. much as possible. Yeah. Now, there's no guarantee that that person who's been successful at your competitor is going to do the same thing for you. Yeah. It's an indicator, yeah. clearly, but do you have the same culture do you have the same arrangements do you have are you going to manage them in the same way mm. and and then yeah. that's then goes into well when you're then going to interview them if you want to take those people there what you've got to work out is yourself is what is our culture like what is our training like what is my management style like how do we perform what are our clients like what's everything does that mimic what this character can can take because if it doesn't the fact that he's massively overproduced for your competitor does not mean that he's going to do that for you. Fantastic, absolutely. And also, my favourite speaker, motivational um, speaker, Jim Rowan. Mm. Um, I watch a lot of him, his stuff, and he's asked a question. And he, his thing was it within his company, he was recruiting people. Um, his analogy was we were getting them from the apple barrel. Right, so we were getting fresh people that had no experience, and we were training them up, and we had a massive fallout rate. And then um, his mentor, a guy called Shelf, said to him, "Well, why don't you look for people that are already doing it elsewhere? So you don't have to train them up. Then they can hit the ground running." And that's exactly what he did. He just went out and recruited people from different organisations, like IBM or whatever, and and then they came across and you know, and then hit the ground running. And the other one is about the police, for example, in this country now, which a lot of people don't realise, is they're doing um, direct entry now. So, for example, if you're maybe have been a director of companies, and um, the police have developed their you know their personal specification for superintendent or inspector, 
um, and above. So people that have worked in industry in, in normal, you know, pri the private sector, they're now coming in as a superintendent and the police wow. be because they're coming in with a fresh perspective and a lot of the, the diehards are going, well, you know, he's never locked anybody up. He's, he's never, he's never been out on, on a Saturday night and, and been to a pub fight as is a PC. So there's that old school mentality, but in terms of like the person specification, the core competencies required to be, you know, to be a leader and, and to, to, you know, work with budgets and, and things like that, you've got to be a part politician at that yeah. sort of level. And, you know, generally, if you've been a, been a you know, chairman of a, of a board or a CEO, you, you know, people are coming in and it's a total change. Um, I mean, my, my friend, the white tutor, actually, is now an inspector and he asked the superintendent about something. He said, I haven't got a clue, Chris. He says, I've only been in the job a year. He says, I'm still finding my feet. And yet he's walking around as a senior officer. And it's not, it's, there's nothing, nothing wrong about it. But, and they're coming in with such a fresh perspective. So, you know, a lot of forces now, they're recognising the value that people can come from outside um, the organisation. You know, they don't have to be, don't have to come from this indoctrinated, you know, like the army or the forces or the police, because the police is quite an indoctrinated organisation. Um, and, and they're finding that they're getting, you know, massive successes. So I think people are seeing that value now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that that's... Um... I didn't realise they were going to to that level. I, I'd had heard that they were they were taking taking in there, and I'm sure I'm sure there probably is a um, a fair amount of resentment from the ones who haven't had to uh, to go out, as you say, go and clear out the the pub brawls uh, and everything else that um, the rank yeah. and file have had to deal with. I've got I've got I've got friends that have been inspectors for 10, 12 years and have maybe failed the promotion board. And yet, you know, you get people coming in like, oh, yes, yeah, so suddenly you've got a superintendent on sort of 65, 70,000. And so you do have that element of people saying, well, what they just walk straight in the job. I've been doing it since I was. So you, but you're always really got in companies, aren't you? You can be in a position for quite a long time and you maybe aspire to a certain role. And then somebody else, get, you know, maybe got some fast track program where they just ascend yeah. a, lot, a lot quicker and further because they've, they've got the skills and abilities. Yeah. It's life, really. It is absolutely, and and I think it's going to um, and it's going to be very interesting once we sort of come out of um, the the pandemic, which I'm you know I, I sincerely hope we will. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, it I, looks yeah. like we will at some point. So, I think so. Uh, I think I think it's imminent. I don't think it's going to carry on for too much longer. Yeah, exactly. And and then I think it's going to be uh, a very interesting time in terms of uh, of talent and jobs and the economy. Um, for a number of different reasons so mm. i think i think that you, you're going to find that uh in my opinion i think a lot of organizations are going to look and think well we've had just about all of our our workforce working remotely and they will assess very accurately uh, the, the sort of the good and bad of that yeah. because they yeah. will be doing that um i'm sure there's probably going to be some some organizations perhaps some high street banks and things like that will probably look and think I'm still delivering everything I had to do. My profits are still high. Why do I need all these office buildings here? Yeah, absolutely. Do that. Should I just get rid of yeah, them? Come from it. So there might be that, or you might have the other end of it, where you're going to have a lot of organisations saying, you know, I've, I, I've, I think it's shown up that certain individuals haven't, haven't hit their numbers, haven't done what they should be doing. It's, you know, it's shown very quickly how effective or ineffective certain people are. So I think there's probably going to be quite a lot of change that will take place. So I think the, um, 
the recruitment organization recruitment companies i think once they you get through the the slightly difficult period it's it's going to perhaps be quite a big boom time for them as there's going to be a lot of a lot of change that will take place yeah. and then that obviously prompts well everyone's going to have to to, to up their skill sets of what they do um one of the things I, I I talk about with with candidates, especially um, especially for any, at any time, is the need to practice, the need to to hone your skills, to get confident in what you're doing. And we sort of talked about that sort of fairly early on uh, in our our discussion, which was that what do you do to try and avoid the the pitfalls that you go in, or you're first on the screen and you're nervous and you don't know what to do. And a lot of what I talk about is the you know, that practice and practice and practice. And the more that you practice, the more confident you will come. You know what your answers are, how you are. Um, I try and encourage people to um, practice in front of the mirror, record mm. themselves, to view that. But also to to observe um, the famous, the, look at the TV, you yeah. know, as to what it is there. And I, some of the examples I've always given, which um, perhaps more recently has been, the likes of the Barack Obamas of this world, of you know, a you know, who's uh, been a, a, an exceptional politician, great communicator, Absolutely. and comes across very well. But you know, have, and I know that you you've picked up, and we talked right at the beginning how you've picked up on on a lot of those. But where do you see some of those examples of uh, of those really good characters of people who perform well, like Barack Obama, like Tony Blair, who are well trained and almost quite natural at it? to how that can help people in in situations when they're practicing for their job interviews yeah i think i think i think it's a really important thing to touch upon i mean i mean again for me personally barack obama was one of the best speakers in terms of you know the way he conducted himself and they said that a lot of his speeches were, were built on the um structure of like you know like martin luther king the way that they used to rise in crescendo and you know there was a lot of psychology involved in the way that Barack Obama used to deliver his speeches, quite different to Trump. Um, but if I think what I would advise people to do is, if you've got somebody you admire, like Barack Obama, it could be somebody that you physically know, or someone that you kind of know from history that's that's really good at speaking. You know, just watch their videos. Like there's a there's an expression in psychology that we say, act as if, right? Use what's called an act as if frame. So act as if you are that person. So, for example, one of the things I do with people under normal circumstances is I, I train them in public speaking or in terms of confidence and whatever. So what we'll do is spend quite a large amount of time trying to create uh, the, the best version of you. So if we imagined ourselves now on a big screen, so, you know, you're the perfect candidate now, um, what are they doing that lets you know? So you almost separate your point of view from, from the other version of you. So if I'm watching myself on a screen... Uh, I do this all the time myself, actually. I review things. So if I'm looking, I want to be the best version of Darren. So what is the Darren on the screen doing in terms of the way he's communicating, in terms of the non-verbal, the, non the way that, you know, he's, he's standing or sitting? What lets me know physically that he's, he's doing well? And by conversely, what, do I, what can I see that lets me know he's not doing well? And it's almost like being a film director. You could then say, Okay, well, I want to tweak this. I don't like what you said there. I don't like the, that gesture that you made. And with technology now, I mean, you know, I've got um, a teleprompter app where I'll just put, just copy and paste the script in. Um, and you can just stand there to camera and, and like, you're, like you're a newsreader and just can constantly review yourself. Because it's not like years ago. I mean, the technology that we've got, got available to us now 
you, you couldn't have fit it in a room, you know, it'd be, it'd yeah. to be delivered on a truck. Whereas, you know, so very often I think it's about refining what, what you already do very, very well. And three key questions for me that I always ask myself and I invite candidates to say is, look, what's gone well about this? You know, what's gone well today? What went well on the interview? Or, you know, what have you done well in terms of your prep towards this, this process? Um, what hasn't gone so well? Okay, so not what's not worked, not what's failed, but what's not worked so well. And then what can you change? What can you do differently? Um, and so therefore, what you do is you get this best version of you. And even if you want to close your eyes, if people are quite visual people, they can close their eyes and imagine themselves in a cinema screen. And then almost like a director would do to an actor, you refine that version of yourself up there. And it sounds a crazy thing to do, but once you're happy, you then in your mind walk into the screen and psychologically it merges the best version of you with you. And it's crazy, but it does work. And it's called visual motor rehearsal, which is what a lot of athletes do. Well, yeah, exactly. I was, I was just about to say, you know, I've heard exactly that, the, the, the great athletes talking about that, that sort of rehearsing that bit of visualizing themselves, the sprinters going down, the path going you know so the whole literally the whole race before the race just starts and they're, they're visualizing yeah. that whole that whole process the sort of the perfect scenario yeah um, definitely when Beckham was in the, was at the height of his career um and when is it Swango and Ericsson was um managing England there's um he brought a lot of his own people and one of them was a guy called Willie Raylu and he's he's wrote several books on this and he was a sports coach a sports trainer but one of his key things that he used to do, which people thought he was mad, he would use visual motor rehearsal. And there's a documentary, which must be on YouTube somewhere. And what they do was they, they wired Beckham up to an EEG machine and they measured his brain waves while he was training, you know, while they were doing the training session. And then what they did was they put him, they didn't hypnotize him per se, but they put him into a relaxed state. So he's just sat on a bed. And they had him visualize what he'd just done. And what was crazy was that the brain waves were identical. Wow. So the brain can't differentiate between things that are real or imagined. Yeah. So we can use the same techniques in terms of interview. So we could kind of go inside, get into a relaxed state, you know, either, you know, record some questions that someone else can play or record it on your phone. And you could run through the interview in your mind, have it go perfectly. Now, again, you know, you can't predict to 100% accuracy that everything's going to be as you imagined it. But statistically, and research has shown that a lot of interviews and other things have gone very, very well as a result of this process. So it's, it's yeah. certainly worth trying. Oh, that's it's a fantastic tip. And it's it sort of it sort of reminds me of when I um again many years ago when I was involved in politics, and um, I used to practice the way that I would interview and. By sort of doing a lot of the things that you you, you mentioned about, but in particular, um, was mimicking the really good politicians. I would I would mimic them, and what I would do because this this is so long ago it was pre, it was pre YouTube, so we didn't have I didn't have the advantage which we do now have. But I used to have to watch the news, watch Newsnight and things like that, and watch an interview. But then what I would do is I would put myself in that politician's position. And in my head, I'd be answering yeah. the questions. Yeah. So I, I often didn't really listen to what their their answers were, but I was basically sat there with them, 
and sort of doing it. And then sometimes you reassess it and then think, well, that wasn't right. And then you listen to what they said and said, why are you doing it like that? I would, I, this is what you should be doing. So it's, it's a, there are so many, there's so much out there for people to look at with, as you talked about with technology, we are very fortunate nowadays that we can effectively look at anything online. It's available in seconds, isn't it? And I think, you know, you bring up Tony Blair. I mean, for me, you know, take the politics out of it. Just look at the man, you know, as a speaker, as an orator, you know, what a fantastic exemplar. Um, you know, I worked on the Iraq inquiry on the select committee. And, and this man was, this was his, his key gesture, which we call it a steeple gesture. Um, you'll tend to find that Trump does a reverse steeple gesture, which is almost confidence with arrogance. Um, whereas um, Tony Blair was, was sat like this, which is what a, a lot of experts tend to do. But he was like a lizard on a rock. He, he wasn't leaking any information at all. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very controlled man. Um, but in terms of his, his performance, it was just it was just faultless. Um, yeah, he was he was very good. He was really really good. And there was there was um, there's another one that I'm particular um, like and and enjoy is that uh, if if you've not seen it before, again it's on YouTube and it's when um, and I think it was when Barack Obama was quite early on in his presidency, and he went over uh, for a visit to Putin. And they obviously, and and as we know, they they didn't they had a particularly frosty relationship, um, and didn't often go very well. <laughs> this particular video, I think, if you put in uh, in YouTube, um, Obama and Putin breakfast, and you'll oh. get this. So they obviously had had been meeting, and it was sort of looked like some big country dacha in somewhere in Russia. Yeah, and they were coming out for a, a, a prepared breakfast. And but it was quite obvious from the I mean, you really didn't have to be a body language expert to work out that things weren't going very well. And it was complete silence. So Obama and Putin were coming out with the foreign secretaries, foreign ministers, and then all the lackeys that they have and the translators. Yeah. And the body language Putin was coming out there. And as he is quite dour anyway, and obviously a lot shorter than Obama, but still portrayed that much more. And it was quite obvious. I'm in control yes. and I have total contempt for you. And he sort of just showed him like this. They sat down and they were having this, this breakfast started to be prepared for them. But Obama clearly thought he, he could see he was uncomfortable with the silence, that he felt he had to do something. And it's the only time I've really seen him slightly under pressure, actually show oh, a bit right. of pressure. Right. Um, but even so, and that's for Obama, because even so, he was still doing it quite well. But there was one, there was a, if I can remember, I might be doing it wrong, but it was a gesture that he did where he was sat down at the table and it was a well, table was quite low as well. Yeah. And he was trying to talk about Sergei Lavrov, so that, who was the foreign minister yeah. for the Russians. And he said, oh, as Minister Lavrov did. And he did this bit where he wasn't looking at Putin. So Putin was there and he was sort of yeah. looking away. And he did a gesture of this and he was sort of touching his face oh, a lot as yeah. he was doing it. And he's trying to he was trying to crack a joke, but he realized and you could just the yeah. tension was so Yeah, obvious. that's that's kind of self-reassuring. It's wasn't a self yeah. in a way. Yeah. But it's a, it was a, it's a fascinating and, and what's even more hilarious about the video is that they they have because it was a traditional Russian breakfast, they had uh, some guy who was dressed in some Cossack uniform oh. with this great big weird contraption, which was there sort of boiling water or something. And he had an old boot that he was using 
to generate heat into it, the air into it. It was wow. just honestly the whole thing. I, I I encourage you to have a look at it, and anyone watching Absolutely. to have a look at it because it's 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 a fascinating view. I've done I've done um, I'll look I'll have a look at that because I've not seen that, but I've, I mean I've researched sort of well um, analyzed Trump and Putin quite a lot. I mean Putin is he is makes me, he does make me laugh because he's such his own his own man. He just doesn't care, you know. He's, he's, he's not yeah. a person that, that feels he has to put, you know, kind of um, show his power. Um, whereas was Trump, I mean, I, I got a month's work when he first got inaugurated just on his handshake, on this bizarre bone crusher handshake that he and he was jerking people towards him to test yeah. the compliance, things like that. So again, handshakes, you know, probably just touch upon that because you will get people like that. You know, you will get these extreme examples of people that maybe interview you. Um, you know, they tend to be what they call wet fish, where it's, you know, it's quite limp. Um, and then some people will crush your hand. And again, it's just, just a firm handshake. You don't have to crush somebody's hand. Because I've, I've known a lot of people in business that have said, you know, yeah, but they had a weak handshake. I didn't trust him. So they could equate a handshake to, to integrity, which is ludicrous, really. But that, that's their particular belief system. It's, it's really true. And it's, and, and it's something I, I'm something I talk about in my book as well um it's one of those things that i think it's one of those things that you can it's a simple thing to deal with because you're absolutely right that what people do is they will make a very quick assumption about somebody based on a handshake which is ridiculous mm. and especially if you're a woman you know generally speaking women aren't going to be going there trying to crush your hand you know no. they they're not going to but they will often be perceived as you're weak if it's a wet, if it's a wet fish handshake, you're weak. You're not. You're you know. You're not going to be good at what you do. That's you might right, be. Yeah. You know. You're not going to be skillful. Um, so it's sort of one of those things that I talk about is. Do you know what? Just do basic firmish handshake and do that. Eradicate the things that are you can deal with really easily. It's in Absolutely. your control really yeah. easily yeah. to deal with, and that's sort of part of getting. I think getting that control early on in the in the interview. I think so. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, I do also train in what we call boardroom body language. So more designed for CEOs and people like that. So we will teach. It's not that relevant um, at, the, at the interview level, but you're still <clears throat> aware of it is, you know, what politicians use is they'll shake hands and then they'll put their hand on the other arm. Um, and again, that can be seen as quite a courteous gesture, but it's about power. Hmm. Um, and then also you'll see politicians. I mean, the royals do this quite a lot. Megan does this with Harry quite a lot. She'll put her hand on his back and guide him through, um, and that's what we call power pats, power gestures. Um, so you tend to find people tend to use those to say, "I'm the more important person than you." Yeah. Um, and one one other one that, that that strikes strikes me now is when Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, first met Trump. Um, Trump had obviously met quite a lot of politicians, and it had become quite common knowledge that he does this bone crusher handshake. So obviously Trudeau had been briefed on this. So they get out the limousine and walk up the White House steps and immediately Trump grabs his hand. Um, but then because Trudeau's expecting it, they, they end up being this arm, arm wrestle almost. So they're pulling each other's hand and then Trump puts his hand on them and, and then Trudeau does the same. So they end up in that this bear hug. Uh, and it's all about power, you know, like you're not going to make me look weak. And, and Trump's been good value again, regardless of the politics. He's been oh. good value to to watch with that. And there's a couple of, again I remember with that um, was one with the Angela Merkel, and I, th I when she was over and he refused 
to shake hands where so everybody was saying shake hand you know can we do the handshake and even she turned and said i think they want a handshake and because he they obviously had had some disagreement about something mm. he was like just ignored it he didn't even didn't even register it as yeah. far as he was concerned yeah. we're not going to do that we're not going to go into that that bit yeah it was so blatant um and then the the japanese um prime minister the one where he, he pulled his hand towards him and then basically was patted his hand. I, let, when I, I always show this clip when I do do talks because he's almost saying, good boy, good boy, because it's such a condescending okay. gesture. And then when, the, when, he, when he lets go of his hand, if you, if you watch it on YouTube, the Japanese guy goes, that, that shakes his hand because his hand's crushed. <laughs> and there, was, there was another one as well. There was, um, I, we're not going to list them all because we'd be here for, for days, but yeah. there, was, uh, there was another one with Macron. Oh, yeah. And I remember the bit where, and again, I know that Macron, you know, even though he's a shorter guy, is is very much into power plays, mm. uh, and and plays it quite well. Um, and I and whether it was deliberate or not, I mean, I mean, it must have been deliberate, but whether he pre-planned it or it was just automatic, there was this bit where they, again they were going for a photo call in the White House, and they they'd been having a meeting, and I don't know if you remember this, where he flicks something from his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. He even says, "Oh, look, dandruff." Yeah, but it was, and Macron dealt with it really well. So he he just sort of laughed it off. I mean, what else can you really do? Yeah. But again, I mean, a incredible, blatant power play Absolutely. from Trump. Yeah, there's a lot of the. How much do you think was? Um, how much do you think that was instinct of his, and how much do you think was was trained? I mean, it, I, I'm always fascinated with Trump as to. Yeah. Is, he, is this just is he his own creation or is it is he actually been trained in do you know what i'm going to do this i, I think with trump i think he's pretty much i mean I, I did a lot of work on him and one of the things they were or one of the things that the media were interested in you know when he first sort of started the primaries in 2017 was does he actually believe this stuff is coming out with and and well yeah you know it, there was complete congruity all of his statements were consistent with his body language and I think in terms of your question, I think, yeah, I think I just, I think pretty much he just, excuse me, does it his way. I, I think he's, they have advisors, but I think if he's, if he's not happy with that or wants to go his own way, I think he'll do that. Whereas other politicians will tend to, you know, will tend to kind of listen to their advice. But I think they all, they all predominantly get, get trained um, in terms of media, um, you know, how to deal with the media. Um, I mean, at the moment, my, my favorite one to, to kind of not like very much is Matt Hancock in the UK because it's hilarious because he's got to the point now where he just can't even be, begin to keep the pretense up. Like we had this footage recently, didn't we, where he's been interviewed by Piers Morgan and then puts his head down as if like he's crying, feigns crying. And, and he just starts to laugh because he's, this is an example of just someone that just can't keep it up anymore. He, you know, he's just, he's just letting his true emotion come out. Uh, discussing this really heavy, heavy sub subject, but yeah, Matt Hancock, he's not very good at um, at delivery, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's interesting. There's 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 a lot of them aren't very good at it, and and it's no. and it's strange because they must be trained a lot. A lot of these politicians must be. I think other countries tend to invest in it. I mean, again, with with sort of law enforcement, the British police aren't trained in any of these things. Whereas you go to America, Canada. France, um, you know, I've, I've even been to the Middle East and, and trained up, you know, police and, and these techniques. 
Um, and before COVID, I was actually due to go and help work with Border Force because um, people know now that they've got rid of landing cards when you come into land. So they've recruited a lot more uh, Border Force at the airport. So they created a role called a behavioral detection officer. So they're going to be trained in all these techniques. Um, I mean, they, they already received some training, but they're going to get enhanced training in terms of asking key questions and looking for um, micro expressions and, and key gestures you know, in the space of a, a, few, a few minutes, whether to detain that person or not and, and question them further. So it's whether people are aware of it not or like it or not, deception detection is all around us. Uh, completely, absolutely. And um, so Darren, where, where can where can people get hold of more information about you? Where, where's the best, I mean, you obviously, you must, you must uh, I know you do an awful lot of work in, in the media, yeah. but uh, I'm sure there are, organizations that also want to contact you directly and and get yeah, more sure. information so it's so on my website you can get me at um darrenstanton.co.uk or my brand which is tvhumanlydetector.co.uk so tvhumanlydetector.co.uk um or twitter it's at twitter um obviously i'm on linkedin um and then i've now had to venture out to things like instagram because that's quite quite good for getting leads so that's that's just tv human lie detector number one Fantastic, and I'll put all the links in uh, in the uh, as part of the program, so everybody can uh, can get that as well and get some more information from you. But Darren, thank you so much. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. I I found it well. fascinating. And that's quite honestly, I, I could I could sit there for for weeks uh, listening to you and, and understanding more. I mean, it, well, it is you. such a big subject. It really, really is. But well, thank you. I've got my second book coming out, which should have been out this year, but obviously because of circumstances, has been delayed. Um, and it's called, to be honest with you, because statistically, most people say, to be honest with you, right before they lie to you. So that's what the name of my second book is going wow. to be. Well, to be honest with you, it has been a pleasure. <laughs> You've been truthful. <laughs> <laughs>